Hello, listeners. We invite you to sharpen your swords and your minds and join hosts Sam and Clay each week as they delve into the historical context, leadership, and tactics surrounding significant battles and campaigns throughout time. Welcome, Welcome to, to the, the Art of War. All right, everybody. Welcome back. I'm Sam. And I'm Clay. And this is the Art of War. And we're, this is part two of the Constantinople podcast. That part two. Part two, baby. So, last episode, we ended off talking about uh, the naval battle that the Ottomans launched to try to retake the Golden Horn, or to yep. take the Golden Horn. And that resulted in an Ottoman loss and... I uh, can't say his name. Bella, what is it? Oh, Batoglu. Batoglu, yeah. Batoglu getting stripped of his, his title, all of his wealth, all of his property. And a Venetian, small little Venetian contingent of, of war galleys and ships getting into the into the Golden Horn. Yeah, so, they, were, they were sent from the Vatican too for, with like a bunch of supplies to resupply mm-hmm. the city. So it was, you know, very bad when you're trying to siege a city. You know, one of the big things is the city you're sieging runs out of supplies and so you know they might surrender because of that because they're going to start starving so having this big naval defeat and then the city of constantinople getting a bunch of these supplies was real bad and see it's funny because in this instance both the ottomans and the byzantines believe that that's just the first of the venetian fleet that's why Balaglu or whatever his name is he gets Batoglu, he gets treated so poorly like at first Mehmed's going to execute him because it's like such a brings so much dishonor on the Ottomans. It was so like an easy of a task in Mehmed's eyes to to defend and to blockade the the Venetian fleet from getting in and to take the Golden Horn. So that's why why it's such like a big deal for both of them is that they think that that's the first of many, right? Right. They think that the Venetians are coming with an even larger fleet. So the Byzantines are thinking, okay, that was successful. We've destroyed a bunch of their their navy. They have no way to get into the Golden Horn. Now we have supplies. And then in like uh, maybe a week or two, another bigger Venetian fleet's going to arrive. So the yeah. Ottomans are like, we're scared. Here, here they come. They're going to, you know, we don't have a navy, right? Right. That's but a good little, point. Yeah, <laughs> little so. do they know, there's no one coming, right? Right. But, you know, they didn't know that. So they had no at this idea. point, the Byzantine citizens, their morale is pretty high because they've yeah. had like a couple major victories. They've repelled the Ottoman forces pretty much fully for the most part. And the Ottoman morale is pretty low because they've had a couple of big defeats and they think that there's this big Christian relief force that's heading their way. And Constantine, Emperor Constantine the Ninth at this time, he actually offers a peace deal to Mehmed the Second, you know, the Sultan of the Ottoman Empire, saying, you know, you guys can leave now and that'll be the end of it. And then so the Grand Vizier of the Ottoman Empire, right, this Kandarli Halil, Halili Pasha dude supported this offer because you know a siege is so lengthy and especially a siege of this scale and caliber of constantinople takes so much resources so mehmed's grand vizier is basically like yeah let's take this peace deal and get out of here but mehmed did not want to do that right yeah and and the funny thing also another reason why his grand vizier is so in support of retreating and stopping the siege is because he was present when murad the second his father mehmed's the father tried taking constantinople and they lost thousands and thousands of soldiers trying to breach the walls so the grand vizier sees as another you know potentially costly siege that's going to end in an ottoman defeat because they've tried about seven times the ottoman empire that is they've tried about seven times to take constantinople over the stint of 200 years right Mm -hmm. so he's you know the the ottomans probably didn't view it as such a like 
easy task as Mehmed did, right? Even the soldiers, because a lot of those were veteran fighters that probably were there with Morad II that tried taking the city. So yeah, the Grand Vizier and a lot of the younger generals, they're in, in a contention throughout the, the, the siege because the younger ones want to take Constantinople. They want to make their name. Mehmed wants to make his name. He's in his 20s. But the Grand Vizier sees it as just like another hopeless cause. That's, you know, let's just take the money that they're going to offer us, take the deal that they're going to give us and be done with it. Right. Mm -hmm. But, but no, Mehmed, he wants to press on because he thinks that he, he has a, a, a stronger strategy than his father with the use of the artillery, the larger forces and the construction of the, uh, the fortification on the east side of the Golden Horn next to the city of Galata. That's basically isolated uh, Constantinople from the rest of the world. So he thinks he's still in an advantageous position, even if he lost that naval battle, and even though he's lost these multiple attacks, frontal yeah. attacks. So he's still, Mehmed II still believes that, you know, the key to cracking Constantinople is a full sur surrounding the entire city. So he has to get his naval force into the Golden Horn Harbor to completely surround Constantinople. That's what he sees as leading to his victory. So he has to come up with a different tactic for that obviously at this point because just a full-on assault trying to rush the great chain didn't work uh so it's pretty <laughs> and pretty crazy what he decides to do right first off though he he positions one of his larger cannons that's on land to assault the towers and the defenders of the great chain so the people on the seawall he now has a cannon firing at them from like the edge of the coast on the land. And then what does he decide to do with his naval force? Well, firstly, the thing that he tries is he tries to get a di take a diplomatic stance on it. He tries to go to the actual uh, governor or the, the leader of this little town called Para, which was Galata, the Genoese colony that's housing the Tower of Galata, which has the other side of the chain. He tries to go to them first and say like, hey, we'll give you a vast amount of wealth. Just let us in. Let's take the city and then we'll drop the chain. That'll make this a lot easier but they're loyal to the Byzantine Empire. They're basically part of Constantinople, so they refuse. That doesn't work. And then he hatches his plan in his mind, which probably at first the council's like, what are you talking about, bro? Like, what is, what is, what are you thinking? He's like, let's move about 150 ships. They're not, you know, they're not absurdly large, not war galleys, but they're pretty big ships. Let's move them over the land, ignore the chain, move them all, all over the land around Galata and drop them in the water. And it's like, that's what, what do you, what, yep. that's no way it's going to work. <laughs> but, but what happens? Yeah. So this is the plan that he's going with. They, um, they make this kind of oiled ramp. So it's easier to push or get the boats out of the water. And then they have them on logs. So it's easier to roll them across the land. And this is all done in the span of one night. So during mm. one night, this huge Ottoman force just starts using the immense manpower that they have. They rolled their ships out of the water and across the entirety of Galata without being seen at all. And then they're able to put the ships in on the other side of the Great Chain in the Golden Horn Harbor. So they port the boats back into the water <laughs> and now they've surrounded Constantinople in the span of one night and the Byzantine forces wake up April 22nd and they just see the Navy, the Ottoman Navy, in their Golden Horn Harbor. So it's like a big surprise. Yeah, and at first, first the accounts say that the, the Venetian fleet and the actual Byzantine fleet thought that they were, they were, um, 
they were friends. They were, you know, allies. They didn't think it was possible that there could be an Ottoman force upstream from where their position was. So they're not very quick to react. But when they do find out that there is a force in the Golden Horn that is an enemy, they, uh, Constantine requests the use of a bunch of uh, fire ships, which are basically, you know, little barges, trade barges or whatever that are laden with very flammable things like hay and tar mm-hmm. and a bunch of uh, barrels of Greek fire, which is just basically extremely flammable materials that just burns and burns and burns. So they're going to use that to destroy the fleet. But by the time that those actually get into the water and they're deployed, the Ottomans have forced the Venetian fleet and the Byzantine fleet back into the harbor. And now there's no way to really retake it because they're in a really bad position. They can't get their ships out of the harbor. And also all the troops leave and they're, they're back in the, the city. So it's like in this, yeah, in the span of like in a night and very quickly unbeknownst to anyone except for the Ottomans, they've managed to move their entire fleet into the Golden Horn. That's probably the more legendary event of the entirety of, of the Siege of Constantinople. Yeah, just imagine how hard it is to yeah. push a boat across. I mean, it's, it's not like a quietly? huge land, but I mean, it's a pretty sizable stretch of land that they push these across. Yeah, and also they do it completely unnoticed. They're yeah. very close to Galata. They've got probably 40,000, 50,000 troops pushing these boats. That's got to make a lot of noise, right? They have to fell right. trees to make a path. None of that gets picked up on by, by either the uh, Byzantines or the Galata, the Genoese. So it's like, wow. Yeah. What a, but this is event. huge for the Ottoman forces because now the entirety of Constantinople is surrounded and they can pressure the the less fortified seawalls in the harbor, and they can also spread out the already very spread out Constantinople, Constantinople forces across a larger section of the wall, right? Because now they have to, mm-hmm. the defenders of Constantinople have to worry about the seawall now and this whole other section of the city, and they're already super small in numbers, and now they have to spread even more thin. Yeah, and that was uh, Giovanni Giustiniani's plan was to dedicate all of his forces to the land walls because they didn't see the seawalls as being contested at all by the Ottomans. They thought that they had a guarantee that they could allocate all their troops to the to the front, but because of this nice little clever plan of Mehmet II, they've lost, you know, a thousand, two thousand troops, which is a ton when their own was their whole standing army was about six to seven thousand. So it's it's a huge blow because now Justiniani has to defend against Fifty to 60,000 uh, Ottomans with a force of about 4,000 troops. Like, yeah, that's right. And this, you outlandish. know, honestly, this is a pretty big risk that Mehmed takes because if if this plan is discovered and then the Byzantine Navy that's guarding Constantinople is able to meet mm-hmm. this Ottoman Navy force as they're, like, putting the boats in and basically destroy the entire Ottoman Navy, they probably win the siege right then and there. Yeah, yeah. there's a lot of those events in this throughout this this siege where one small decision i mean this happens with many battles too it's just one small thing if it went differently it could have gone completely in the favor of the opposite force right and like yeah they could have they would have wiped out the ottoman navy maybe they wouldn't wipe out the full thing but that would have guaranteed that they had the ocean at their disposal and they could have maybe you know i don't know what they could have done but they could have gone out and got resources got troops from somewhere else but now they're stuck they're completely stuck all right so this is just almost a complete reversal of how things are going. Now the Ottomans and Mehmed have the upper hand. And so through the rest of April, it's just, you know, continuing 
the artillery fire that's been happening for so many weeks now. And Mehmed actually offers a offer of unconditional surrender for Emperor Constantine, in which, you know, it's a pretty good offer. It's basically the citizens and everybody would be spared and they would just kind of pay tribute to the Ottoman Empire and be under the Ottoman Empire, but no one would really get executed. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's similar to when we were talking about Memhead in about two or three episodes ago, and we were talking about how, how or I was saying, going on about how he was very merciful and he was very kind in his, his regards to mm-hmm. foreign powers. He was conquering. Like when he conquered Rhodes, he gave basically the same ultimatum. He said, you can surrender, and if you surrender, all of you can leave completely unmolested with anything you can put on a boat. You can take everything, and then the people that stay, they got to keep their religious values and their culture and everything, and they they weren't forced to convert, and they also avoided taxes for about five years. So he's you know he shows here too that he's a very merciful person. Like he's not how history kind of spins him as you know, this cruel conqueror that's doing all these horrible things, but. In this instance, he's giving them the best possible surrender deal. Right. Like, honestly, they, they could take whatever they wanted, everyone could leave, and then nobody would be killed. Like, that's pretty wild when you think about it. Yeah. And But, and, yeah, uh, so, yeah, Emperor Constantine rejects the offer, which, you know, I mean, in his mindset, if you're thinking that you're going to get the Christian relief forces from, you know, yeah. Venetian, the Venetian Navy or from Hungary, then, you know, you're kind of thinking, why should I take this offer when I'm going to get support and the siege is going to end in my favor anyways? Yeah, and also this is Mehmed, who's a younger leader than Murad II, and Constantine was alive when Murad II tried taking Constantinople some 50 years prior. Mm-hmm. So he's thinking, oh, it's a young you know, a young son that's doing one of his first military expeditions. There's no way that his he could take it if his father didn't take it. And also they have that whole concept of it's constantinople it's only ever been taken one time that's because we left the gates open in 1204 right like they don't see constantinople as being a, a city that can really be taken so there's a lot of factors that probably play into why constantine just immediately rejects the offer and doesn't even really go into negotiations with Mehmed any further after that point mm-hmm. yeah so this brings us you know into may the last month of the siege and you know it's a lot of the, the same kind of little skirmishes that Giovanni Justiniani is still able to repel the Ottoman offensive attacks, but the Ottomans are still just bombarding the city with their artillery, but the walls are being repaired. You know, Giovanni's very good at managing it so far. And see the one, the one big issue with the Constantinople walls is that the walls themselves, they can be repaired very quickly, but gateways, their, their main gates are really difficult to repair. So when they're getting constantly bombarded and damaged, it's hard for them to repair these very large structures that have a metal gate, a metal wall that don't have areas that they can place rubble in front of where they can repair. So the focus switches from damaging the walls towards the middle of May to damaging the gatehouses so that they can break through there because that's that's what he views as or Mehmed views as the, the weakness in the walls. And the first thing he hits is he actually damages severely the St. Romanus uh, gateway that is south of the southern por- southern portion of the wall where Justiani is, is set up. And he launches a contingent of about... 10 to 20,000 light infantry to go and pry at the thing. And they actually start getting through, but Justiniani is able to repel them because it's just the light infantry. It's not the Janissaries. It's just mm-hmm. mainly the like Christian uh, captured soldiers and the 
APAC, which are the, the light infantry. So he starts to change his focus to going after the gatehouses. And you see that yeah. about five days after two. But not only are they, you know, just doing the artillery bombardments and pushing with the light infantry, they also have some other things going on the Ottomans do. So they actually have a sapping force at this same time period as well. And if you recall, well, if you haven't listened to it yet, go listen to our episode on the siege of Tyr and Gaza, which we talk about sapping. But, you know, basically sapping is digging underneath the walls to kind of weaken the walls and maybe getting into the city that way. And um, so we have this Ottoman sapping force. And what's the only effective measure to counter sapping? Is sapping. You counter sap. You dig a tunnel either above or below the forces the the sapping forces and then you at surprise attack them and you have little scuffles in these these small little tunnels yeah. and you try to retake their what they've sapped and then you you cave in their tunnels by destroying their supports in some manner that's basically the only way there's there was other uh, methods that were used where you would you could drown them out but also at this period of time sapping is a very archaic concept so they have preventative measures to ensure that they don't get drowned by you know them flooding the tunnels. So yeah, the only measure is to countersap, and uh, Giovanni Justiniani, the legend, he was expecting this, so he has at his disposal a tunneler named Johannes Grant, and this guy is very good at what he does. He has actually, prior to the siege even uh, getting into full swing, he has built small tunnels all underneath the walls that are for listening for the sappers, where they're able to locate where the the digging is going on so they can meet them before they can get close to the walls and maybe jeopardize the strength of them. So that's 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 what happens. And they have a lot of fights. I think that on the 21st, 23rd, 25th, and 26th, uh, there's multiple battles underground that go on to retake these tunnels. And the, the Byzantine forces come out on the better end of these battles. Mm-hmm. They actually are able to repel a significant force of the Ottomans that are... Um, that are using in the that are sapping underneath the wall and the ottomans are trying a bunch of things right now so they're also trying to cut the great chain of the golden horn because Mm -hmm. they do have their larger war galleys still on the other side you know because they can't lift those across the land so they have a significant portion of their navy still on the other side of the great chain but they actually can't cut through the chain. It's, it's too sturdy. Yeah. They can't actually get through it on the <laughs> using the tools that they have. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's gargantuan chain. I wonder if that still exists. I was, I was thinking about that. I wonder if that chain is still there or if there's in somewhere in Galata or Istanbul, if there is a, you know, like the actual chain. Because from the sources, the thing is unbelievably large, like yeah. one of the largest ever constructed. So yeah, they don't really make much effort, or they don't make much progress getting their war galleys into the Golden Horn. But this kind of, I guess, it, it reinvigorates the Byzantines because the the attack on the Saint Romanus Gate, plus the sapping effort efforts being quelled, and also the inability for the actual main uh, Ottoman navy to get into the Golden Horn, it it really inspires them because you see that after these you know these these events, there's multiple instances where uh Mehmed launches an attack on the walls mm-hmm. over the stint of the just the 6th to the 11th he launches multiple attacks on the walls and they just repel them very very little losses on the sides of the Byzantines so it 
it probably reinvigorated them and gave them gave them more morale. Yeah, over. they're they're having a ton of small victories. There's even the Ottomans try, you know, building a wooden siege tower to, you know, try to get their forces onto the wall, and the Constantinople defenders are able to go out in the middle of the night and burn it down. So they're getting mm-hmm. a lot of these little victories that are, you know, really boosting the morale of the defenders. Yeah, and, and also from the, the primary sources, there's a, accounts that a lot of people didn't have faith in Constantine. They kind of saw him as a weak ruler. They kind of saw him as, as spineless, and they were afraid that he was going to, in battle, just run. But then on the 11th of May, five days after the St. Romanus Gate gets uh, partially destroyed and there's a full-blown attack on it, the uh, Caligaria Gates, which is to the, to the north, where Constantine is positioned with his troops, his, his royal forces, that gets destroyed. The Caligaria gate gets partially destroyed, and the same thing happens. He sends, Mehmed sends about 20,000, 30,000 light infantry to, to kind of pry at the wall, mm-hmm. and Constantine, with his small force, also repels them. So then that that's that gives a bunch of the, the fighting forces, you know, they get they get support for Constantine because they didn't believe he could do it, and now they they see he he's actually with this you know he only had like seven hundred eight hundred troops was able to fight back yeah. this huge force, so yeah they're constantly getting victories, and it looks like because you know every single time they're making these attacks every single time in the San Romanus Caligaria the sapping ventures the the siege towers they're losing the Ottomans are losing a ton of soldiers because right. it's you know they're running through an open field. And they're fighting against forces on top of a wall, and they're you know they ha- they have cannons. The the Byzantines have cannons, so they're taking heavy losses every single time. And this is exactly what happens in the previous instances of Constantinople, Constantinople being sieged. They just lose so many troops that they just can't afford it anymore. It just doesn't make sense. Yeah. And so it probably it probably doesn't look good for the Ottomans. They probably see the same thing as like they're winning all these small victories. This isn't going good for us. Right. Yeah. So it gets to a point, you know, in in late May where. Mehmed II hears that there's a rebellion rising in Asia Minor of the Ottoman Empire. So he has this rebellion that's happening back at his home front, but he has the majority of his forces here sieging Constantinople. So now it's getting to, he really has to end this quickly, either capture the city or make a peace deal or something so he can get back and quell a rebellion in Asia Minor. So he actually does another offer of surrender for Emperor Constantine. And this one is, you know, a similar one to the one before where it's actually very, you know, beneficial to Constantine. Him and his followers would be allowed to leave peacefully from the city and they wouldn't be allowed to keep their wealth and their estates. So, you know, it's a very fair offer. Um, And this is an offer that, you know, the Grand Vizier also supported. But Constantine once again rejects this offer Maybe because things seem to be going pretty well, uh, you know, continuing there, the Constantine and the Constantinople defenders are having a bunch of these little victories, and they still believe that they're going to get the Christian reinforcements. Uh, it hasn't happened yet, but they're they're thinking that it's going to happen. Yeah, and actually, right after that uh, negotiation between Mehmed and, and Constantine, they send out the uh, Constantinople sends out a little small venetian fleet of of small boats to go and prowl through the waters outside of constantinople to try to locate the venetian because at this point they're thinking they got to be here already like it's been those first those first uh uh, ships that arrived came 
over a month ago. So they that the main force should be here pretty soon. So they, their logic was that the Venetian fleet got lost and mm-hmm. that they were they were you know going the wrong direction. So they send out this small contingent to go and find them. But then the Venetians come back and they basically have news that there's no Venetian fleet coming at all. That that is all that they were given from the Pope and from Europe as a whole. So that's kind of like a big punch to the gut for Byz- uh, the Byzantine people because they expected a relief force. But right at the same time, the Ottomans are in council discussing what to do next because, mm-hmm. like you said, there's a rebellion happening in Asia Minor, and that's been also one of the biggest factors for why Constantinople has failed to be sieged by the Ottomans is that usually there's something back at their home that stops them from being able to do it, like a rebellion, or they just logistically can't can't afford it anymore. So he's kind of at an impasse. He has to decide. And like you said, the Grand Visor is telling him constantly, we need to get out of here. This is not a good idea. We're going to lose too many troops. You might die. Just let's end it right here. But for about a day and a half, this council goes on, and they eventually come to the decision that they're going to have a full-blown, they're going to send everything they're gonna throw the, throw the whole fence at it right right and, and it's you know a, a split decision because you have the yeah. grand vizier kandarli halili pasha and his supporters and they're supporting lifting the siege and retreating completely and then you have Mehmed and his you know his teachers and his supporters that are on his side and he wants to capture the city and so there's yeah. a split in the ottoman leadership but you know Mehmed is always going to have the final say and he decides that he wants to do a final offensive push to capture Constantinople yeah and you know prior to the this this decision the Janissaries haven't been really used to the full extent right they've been used in small amounts for these these attacks but the full Janissary force hasn't been deployed so that's what this final assault is going to entail is using the Janissaries to, to try to actually make a, like a desperate push into the city in one of the breaks that they, they could potentially make on the walls. And so that's, that's, that's what the plan is. Yeah. Yeah. So we're at the end of May and in preparation for this, Mehmed actually orders that the Ottoman troops pretty much, you know, cease their attack so that they can rest. So in, in the accounts I read, it was, basically saying that a silence overtook the peninsula in mm-hmm. you know preparation for this attack that's just got to be pretty wild to think about how it's just been non-stop cannon fire for months and now it's completely silent yep and there's they're they're all in prayer right. both sides are in prayer because this is um i think it's it's right around the pentecostal season for for uh greek christianity back then so mm-hmm. they're they're at a you know the cusp of their religious uh, views or their religious values and they're participating in their religious ceremonies whilst the Ottomans are also resting and participating in their religious ceremonies because they see you know, they're about to go into battle so they're all praying and they're uh, they're worshipping and so yeah it's just like this peace, this you know, calm, calm before the storm. Yep. It's just both sides are, I don't know if the the Byzantines probably weren't expecting what was coming but the Ottomans were, were preparing for the, the final little push. Yeah, which yeah so they have this day of rest, pretty much, with no no fighting at all. And then, similar to his surprise naval move, Mehmed orders the all-out attack at midnight. Mm-hmm. And so, 
that he ordered he gives the order at midnight and at this time the ottoman laborers have filled the moat that's surrounding the entire city so this allows for you know a much more aggressive ground assault where they don't yep. have to cross the moat at certain points where they've created bridges they can just cross it pretty readily and it's you know a series of a couple of assaults and the first assault is obviously the light infantry the rebellion and anatolian infantry soldiers and pretty much this entire assault is focused at the gate of St. Ro- Romanus, right? Which uh, mm-hmm. they have been attacking for some days now, and they've actually made some pretty sizable gains in the fortifications there. Yeah, and, and you know, at first you kind of look at it and you say, that's not a very wise decision. Why would you go after uh, Giovanni Justiniani? He's the one, you know, like, the most capable of the leaders, and he's got the most forces on that, that portion of the wall. But the, the accounts state that, that that gatehouse was so severely damaged that you could basically, at that point, just climb over the rubble and get into the city. So there wasn't really even need for a siege tower or, or ladders. They could just go straight in if they were able to you know, repel Justiniani's forces and get them off the walls. And then if they get them off the walls, they basically take in the city, right? Right. So, yeah, he sends the the first troops of the, the Christian, you know, the, the captured Christian forces. There's not many of them. And, of course, they're going to send them first because yep. they don't yep. care about them very much. And then, like you said, the, the light infantry, which is the vast majority of the troops. And the plan is to overwhelm these 1,000, 2,000 troops and just by sheer numbers and then the janissaries can come in and clean up right right and but, uh yeah giovanni yeah. justiniani is not going down that easy right no, he's no, no, repelling no. this first assault very well and it gets to the point to where mehmed has to order his janissary force to go and attack the gate you know it was expected that the january force would kind of be the cleanup to end it but now he actually has to use the janissaries to even get into the city yeah and this is from from what I read is this is like the the last desperate play that he has because there's the the rest of his forces are in retreat from the walls they they're not making any progress at all so he's sending these three thousand to four thousand janissaries to make the last possible attack because if that fails it's over the right. siege is pretty much done because they're taking so many losses there's not many accounts that talk about how many soldiers are dying yeah. in these sieges or in these these uh, these assaults but it's ridiculously high it has to be right, right? so this is this is his last play his last hurrah and he sends those 3000 in and Justiniani is holding his own these these soldiers him and his soldiers they're they're hard and fighters so they're going against these janissaries who are also the elite of the elite and they're actually winning yes. they're winning pretty decisively after they've just fought off this huge force right and then what happens? Yeah, and so the Ottoman attackers get a huge break in that the Janissary rifle attack was able to injure Giovanni Justiniani, and he gets a mortal wound from the Ottoman gunfire, and he's taken by some of his troops and carried to the rear of the defenders. But, you know, this already tired and battered defending force, seeing their leader pretty much fall in battle, they lose a huge amount of morale and then there's a bunch of confusion because they just see their leader basically die before them and then pretty much after this point the defenders are very quick to rout this is pretty much the end of it once uh, Giovanni Justiniani falls which you know it speaks to how effective he was at leading this very you know 
not really well equipped and tired defending force of Constantinople. He was very effective in it, but once he falls, pretty much the entirety of the defense falls. Yeah, and so the troops are all running back in a panic because they believe that they're losing, that Justiniani is... Because they, they don't initially see that he's injured, and they believe that he's fleeing the field because they've lost the gatehouse, and they think that it's not, oh, secure his safety, it's like he's running to escape the battle, you know, just retreating for his own life. So they think, oh, let's follow him instead. So they, they dip out, and then this, uh, there's about 450 Janissaries that have survived this attack, yeah. this frontal assault, and they, they get on top of a small gatehouse next to the St. Romanus called the uh, Porta, and they start mounting Ottoman flags on top of it. Right. And the relief forces that were coming from Constantine, they see this, and they're, they're, they don't know that there's only 400 Janissaries on top of that gatehouse, which they could have easily fought and, and maybe forced back. Mm-hmm. So they see just these flags and think that they've lost, right? So they all start retreating to the Hagia Sophia as maybe a last-ditch defense effort, but Constantine is telling them not to leave, but they're doing it anyway, and so him and his last little royal guard, about 200, 300 soldiers, they make a charge attempt at the, you know, huge amount of light infantry and right. Janissaries that are coming over the walls. And there's actually two accounts. There's there's one that says that <laughs> that Constantine, when he saw the flag flying and he saw the troops flowing over the wall, he hung himself. I don't know how he would have hung himself that quickly, right. but that's one of the accounts. And the other one is that he, he uh, made one little last-ditch... Uh, charge attempt to try to retake yeah. the gatehouse. I, I'm inclined to believe that one a little bit more yes. because that makes know. him sound like a much cooler guy, right? Yeah. And it also kind of kind of goes in line with what he did right. in the battle. Like, like he, he, didn't he really... wasn't he didn't shy away from battle. Yeah. He was involved yeah. in some of the skirmishes, so it's much much more believable to me that he died in these ensuing street skirmishes as the Ottoman troops were flooding into the city. And yeah, another thing sure. too is Lucas Notorious, who is the the naval commander for Constantinople was guarding the seawall this entire time and the seawall was fine the ottomans didn't really do anything there but um yeah he had to retreat as well when he saw the the ottoman forces enter the city and the flags raised and he died in street skirmishes as well there's also another account saying that he fled but (laughs) (laughs) yeah i mean there's there's a count saying that justiniani he fled and got away with his forces which I mean, that doesn't make sense at all from all of the, the stories that say that the reason they gave the wall in the first place was because they saw Justiniani injured. But there's there's some that say that he fled and lived out his life in general comfort. Yeah, but, but we don't believe that. Especially yeah, just, he died. For just how amazing of a leader Justiniani was, I feel like he would have died in battle for sure. Yeah, for sure. And uh, yeah, so so basically that's they, they have lost at this point because... Yep. Now that the, you know, there's probably thirty to 40,000 troops still alive on the Ottoman side, and they're in the city, and if you got 2,000 troops left, there's no defensive position inside of Constantinople anymore. They've passed the walls, and the Hagia Sophia, or Hagia Sophia is the only place, really, that you could, like, mount some form of defense, right. but they're not organized at all. They're in a confusion. They're in a panic. Yeah. So they get routinely killed. Some of the Genoese escape uh, to... Galata, which is the the border town, the the little colony right. next to to Constantinople, which is across and, the the harbor. Yeah, across the, the the Golden Horn, and then the actual royal 
fleet where it's just one boat, the royal boat that was supposed to house the king and all the family members. Some of them actually escape and civilians board it and they're able to escape. And then there's about three or four Venetian boats that make it past the blockade yeah. and escape with Venetians and, and civilians. But other than that, no one else makes it out, and it's like it's pretty brutal right. what happens. You have a lot of the city defenders, you know, who are just civilians, pretty much armed, try to go back and um, you know defend their families. But um, Mehmed allows his troops to basically loot whatever they want in the city for a period of time. So there's all of this looting going on, and a bunch of people are being killed. People that are tr- that Constantinople citizens that are trying to guard some some of the cathedrals are just being you know massacred outright because the cathedrals had the most valuable loot so the ottomans were going there first to loot all that good stuff and yeah it was pretty bad for you know a few hours until i think at noon of the next day mehmed ii rides into constantinople and he orders a cease of all of the looting yeah, and it's it's they say that about thirty five thousand civilians were um, enslaved, captured and yep. enslaved, and this is all part of like you know Mehmed. He's still a good guy, but he had agreed to prior to the siege, I guess maybe to garner support for the siege. He had promised his troops that if they were to take the city, they'd have a day, two days to ransack, take whatever they wanted, uncontested. And just, you know, make as much money as they possibly could for themselves. Because... payment, right? Right. When we, you know, because the Janissaries were paid, they were paid pretty well, but Mm -hmm. most of the other troops in the Ottoman army weren't paid at all. So this was, you know, their chance to get their riches from this very long, drawn-out battle and siege. Yeah, and it said that Mehmed was very uncomfortable with what was happening in the city. Right. That he wasn't okay with it, but he knew that he couldn't break his agreement with them. So yeah, he comes into the city, he orders uh, a stop to all the violence to the ransacking the destruction of the city because he actually wanted the city to be completely untouched he, he didn't really say anything about the the citizens but he wanted the architecture and the buildings to remain untouched because he planned to make it the capital of the ottoman empire so he wanted all of that to remain but they destroyed pretty much every single one of the churches and cathedrals that exist in constantinople maybe because they were trying to look for as much loot as they could possibly get, but also maybe because it was a differing religion that they were yeah. in contention with. And yeah, the, the majority of the citizens have been killed or enslaved. But when Mehmed comes into the city, he says that they have to stop and any civilians that had survived the, the raid, the ransacking, they could return to their homes unmolested. That was what he said. But there was, like, nobody left. Yeah. They were all, they were all either captured or killed. And so it's, it's like... Yeah, and it's... You know, I, it makes me even wonder because one of the surrender offers he gave to Constantine was that there wouldn't be any looting. But how can... I, I just... It makes me wonder if he, Mehmed II, could actually restrain the thirty to 40,000 troops yeah. from looting. It seems like a pretty tall task. Yeah, think about it. In 1204, uh, the Christian Crusade forces, they couldn't even stop them from yeah. taking their <laughs> Constantinople stuff. And oh, that's another n- interesting point, too, is that it said that uh, a lot of the troops were upset because there was not much wealth in Constantinople because right. some of like the most valuable artifacts and items had been taken in the 1204 you know, ransacking of Constantinople. And that was 200 years prior, but they haven't really been 
making a lot of money in that time period. So they haven't restocking their wealth. So there wasn't actually much they get from Constantinople in yeah. terms of, of wealth. Besides the city itself. And, you know, yes. Mehmed rides into the great cathedral of the Hagia Sophia and he converts it to a mosque immediately mm -hmm. and then prays there. And, you know, the Hagia Sophia is actually really, really beautiful. If you've seen pictures of it, it's really Huge. just an architectural wonder and it's really cool. So maybe we'll post a picture on Instagram, but um, yes. yeah. So Another thing that happened as a result of, you know, yes, Mehmed has conquered perhaps the most fortified and one of the greatest cities of history at this time. Um, but the amount of people that died, right? We have Orhan, the um, the Ottoman noble that was, you know, possible mm -hmm. contender for Mehmed. He's killed. Uh, Giovanni Justiniani's killed. Lucas Notorious are killed. All of these, you know, significant names. And shortly after this siege, Mehmed executes his grand vizier, the Halili Pasha, because he was seen as, you know, a possible enemy to Mehmed. So not only does he achieve one of his greatest goals of con conquering Constantinople, but he also eliminates a lot of his enemies in kind yep. of one, one short time period. Yeah, like we were talking about in the, the previous podcast, uh, Halil Pasha and Mehmed were never on good terms, even when he was like a little kid. Right. So I think he probably sees this as like, this is my opportunity to get rid of this guy. Yeah. And he does. He kills him like pretty much right after they take the city. Like the day following it, he, he has him executed, which is like, wow, that's, I wonder how that went down with, with everybody. Because he had been around for forever. He'd been the Grand Vizier for like 40 years. Yeah. But And, yeah, and, and the and, Grand Vizier is like one of the highest ranking in mm -hmm. the I mean, military so you know possibly that's why the med waited because if he killed one of the highest ranking like, yeah. military commanders in the ottoman army it might have caused a lot of unrest yeah and the grand vizier had or, or Halil pasha had pretty much ruled the ottoman empire for murad for about like four or five years when uh Mehmet was too young but he was still in the, in the position to be the king right the, the sultan but yeah, and, and interestingly enough, the, the city of Galata, or Para, that's across from the Golden Horn, they don't really do anything to them. They're <laughs> just yeah. like, we're going to, you know, we're going to take you over, but there's not really any, like, repercussions that they face. They don't experience the mass enslavement and, and killing that happens in Constantinople, which is kind of funny, because they were still in the, you know, there's still the, the same resistance happening yeah. there that there was in Constantinople. But those, so yeah, those Genoese troops... They, they just escaped into Galata and got got a, a mercy. It's, it's weird. It's like, why why would you not have killed the Genoese troops? But they didn't. I don't know. Maybe it was yeah. just, you know, such a long, long campaign already. And he had to, he knew he had to get back to quell the rebellions in the Ottoman yeah. Empire. So. Yeah, maybe he didn't want to have to siege that little town. <laughs> yeah. It like a lot of effort. Well, it had the same fortifications of Constantinople. The walls oh, no. were the same. Right? Oh, yeah, that's that's right. No, the reason the reason that they didn't um, they didn't face repercussions is they surrender a little bit before the city's taken. Mm -hmm. Whenever the the navy uh, was trying to either cut the chain or there was some there was some big navy procession where they're trying to get into the Golden Horn and they presented Galato with the offer to surrender on the good terms yeah and, and they they're like okay it. yes this doesn't look that. good for constantinople we'll take that well you should you should talk about the the high sophia what the the event oh yeah so report. there's a little bit of you know a little legend that goes on that says that after the capture of constantinople or the fall of it there's like flames that erupt above the Hagia sophia the great cathedral 
And there's, you know, a couple of historical accounts of this in the city at the time and some other strange astronomical features like a partial eclipse or like um, Mm -hmm. the day the city fell, there was a a dense fog that was pretty unusual for the time. And it's from what I've read is all attributed to this volcanic eruption that was like in the Coral Sea off the coast of Australia. Apparently it was a very giant undersea volcano that erupted and affected the entire world at the time with you know multiple crops being killed off in the harvest season and a bunch of weird weather and snow and some historians say that uh, the thick fog was because of this eruption and the fires above the Hagia Sophia were like an optical illusion that was caused by this volcanic eruption as well so a little bit of an interesting point that goes along with this it's kind of kind of cool reading about that yeah can you imagine if like even one of those was true like they just yeah. take the city and there's a there's a full eclipse like how terrifying would that be they like come into the city you're all running for your lives you look up and there's just a giant eclipse like right. black moon you're like what what is happening Which, you, and you know you look I mean, up it and the probably happened <laughs> yeah i mean if there's that many accounts of it it probably did occur but it's just it's wild that it all happens on the, the, yeah, the day just that the, the timing fall of is... constantinople right. yeah Goes yeah, back so, to the, the, you know, Alexander the Great astronomical events. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's pretty pretty wild. So that's like you know that's that's probably one of the more. It's got to probably be the most important siege, successful siege of any place in the entire world yeah. in the history of mankind. That's probably probably the most important because that was the end of the Roman Empire. The the last king of the Roman Empire yeah. dies. And the last city, the last province that's in control of the Byzantine Roman Empire is captured. So there's no more. It's, they're right. done. There's still the, the European Roman Empire, but that's a little bit different. Yeah, from the, the actual, Holy Roman Empire. OG. Yeah, the OG uh, Roman Empire. Yeah. but And, you know, a lot of historians credit this. Um, there was, What happens after this with, you know, a huge influx of Byzantine scholars to Greece and other Christian nations as starting the Renaissance period. So, you know, this is seen as the end of the Middle Ages and the start of the Renaissance, which, you know, is mm-hmm. pretty significant. And so, it, yeah, I guess it would be, you know, the most significant siege. I still think the coolest siege is probably the Siege of Tyr in oh, Alexander yes, the Great's campaign, just because it's insane what happens. Yes, the land bridge. Yeah. But so I guess we'll do our rating now of both parts. So for those that are just now tuning in, we do a rating of the tactics in a battle or a siege where we cover and we base our rating on whether it well we base it on the scale of like lame to flaming pig um flaming (laughs) pigs are a tactic that were used to (laughs) um how do i say this yeah flaming pigs were used to overcome the immense power of war elephants because the elephants were scared of the flaming pig so yeah the the romans used to use them against hannibal's uh elephants because for some reason i don't know why it's unbeknownst to me why why would you be scared of flaming pigs like why why there's nothing scary about that yeah, i don't know <laughs> but it was effective uh, so it was scared well, them, scared them I, elephants. yeah i guess maybe well, should we do two ratings should we do one for constantinople and one for the ottomans sure like rate both sides so just because we so did much. two parts yeah we also, yeah we did two parts so yeah so yeah so let's do ottomans first yeah. what would you give the ottomans i mean the ottomans i would probably give them um 
you know, it'd be like a really nice seared pork chop just for getting the entire Navy across a land strip yeah. into the Golden Horn. That's just such a ballsy move and so bold and crazy. You know, I might I might have given them a flaming pig, but the continued like unsuccessful siege or uh, assaults that they made it makes them makes them a flaming piglet. All right, so it's it's yeah. just a small little baby pig on fire running at you, right? Okay. Because that just the use the use of the constant artillery barraging was like a new tactic, right? He also had a gargantuan cannon, yeah. the basilica. Then his use of the oiled logs to transport half of his navy, majority of his navy into the golden horn it's like all that and he's he's in his 20s like you know that's pretty impressive so i gotta give him i gotta give the ottoman empire a flaming okay. piglet that's pretty high it's the highest rating that's pretty high yeah it is, it is all right so the, the constantinople i mean like you could, God, just 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 giovanni just justiniani yeah, it's like the overwhelming odds to defend against that yeah and with no support or anything and the, the tactics they use to rebuild the walls and, he might get a flaming to, pig just because for what he has and his name yeah i i think you know he might have he might be one of the greatest military leaders we've covered so far you know we've had john hunyadi and all these other really amazing people but giovanni justiniani you know can't really top him yeah i mean you gotta think hunyadi was in a position prior to the all these battles we talked about of like a military leader justiniani was like a warrior of wealth like he went after you know, conflicts to make money, and he's tasked with defending the city, and he does a hell of a job with it, right? Yeah. So, like, that's pretty impressive that he, he takes over probably with no experience of that, like, of defending sieges, and he does an amazing job of it. So, yeah, he... I don't know. How do we... I don't, you can't give him a flaming pig. We can't give him a flaming pig. We gotta give him, like, something close to a flaming pig. Like... A very a very warm pig. Like a very it's, it's warm a, pig. <laughs> it's okay. it's like a hundred and ten degree Texas summer and yep. his skin is burning. Okay. Right? But it's a full grown you know, pig yeah, running like it out. Tes- yeah, okay. Yes. Like a full yeah. grown pig roast, you know. Yes. Not on fire, but you know, still tasty. <laughs> yes. I guess that's I guess that's what I'd give him. Would you, you give him the same? Yeah, yeah. I'd give him the same. I, he's just amazing. Yeah. Yes. Good old Justiniani. But yeah, that's the the fall of Constantinople. Yep. So I think with this, we're we're gonna be you know leaving the medieval ages. We're gonna move on to something Mayhaps. else. Mayhaps. Oh, unless you want to say, we'll figure it out. I mean, there's just so much military conflict in the medieval uh, medieval period. You might read about something like that's a really cool concept. We can do a podcast sure. on it. But yeah, we might. Yeah, we could move on. We'll to always come back. You know, there's, there's of course there's so so much battles. potential. So many wars and, and battles in history. But yeah. All right. Thanks for listening. Yeah, thanks for listening, guys. Um, if you want, check out our social medias, our Instagram. And yeah, thanks for listening. Yep. Tune in next week. Hi, listeners. We hope you're enjoying the podcast. And if you are, make sure to follow us on all of our social medias. You can find our social medias in the description on our Spotify page. If you enjoyed what you heard, make sure to check out our sister podcast, Gray Skies. Each week, the host, Eliza, talks about a different national disaster that happened in recent history. And hopefully, we're going to be able to collaborate with her. Yeah, so look forward to that. 